Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we sit down with Adam Butler, CIO of Resolve Asset Management, about risk parity as an investment strategy. From what risk parity is to the types of investors who may benefit from allocating to risk parity, Adam helps break down risk parity and explains why investors may want to be looking at strategies like this now and in the future. They say diversification is one of the only free lunches in investing, and risk parity investment strategies can help many investors diversify beyond traditional stocks and bonds. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Resolve's Adam Butler. Adam, second time around on Excess Returns. Thank you for joining us. I'm always happy to chat with you guys. I'm glad you invited me on again. This is going to be a great topic. We first had you on, it was episode 51. We're now 150 plus episodes in to uh, the podcast. And so like you guys, I think we're committed to um, sort of educating investors around, you know, topics that we're interested in learning about and that we can have people like you on to help us understand um, some of this stuff uh, in more detail. Um, one of the things I wanted to also just mention is, and I appreciate this, you, you invited Jack and I on uh, Resolve Riffs a few months ago. Um, I wasn't able to make it. I kind of hung Jack out to dry and that's a, a continuous running joke that like we were both, we were both like, how are we going to do on this Resolve thing? And then I backed out and it was Jack only. Well, I mean, if, you, if we're going to pick the most handsome, smartest one of you guys, clearly it's, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> just to give a little background on this, you know, uh, I mean, basically the Resolve Riffs, I, I can tell you, like, there's three things about Resolve Riffs. One is that the hosts probably cumulatively are the smartest hosts of any investing podcast. Two is the guests are typically PhDs. And three is it's live. So when, when Rod asked us to come on, I was like, you know, Justin, I'd love to talk to these guys, but we're probably not, we're probably not qualified to be on this thing. So of course, Justin's like, oh yeah, we'll do it together. No problem. And then like a week before we're going on, he's like, yeah, I can't make it. You're on your own. So uh, yeah, so it was probably the only podcast I've done where I was definitely nervous to do it. So hopefully I was able to at least, at least hold my own um, with you guys. Well, you're very great, uh, gracious to say that, but I mean, I, I thought you were fantastic and we had a lot of fun with it. So um, yeah, I mean, we've gotten a lot, a lot of great feedback. Yeah, so Adam, we wanted to have you on today to talk about this idea, this concept of risk parity, um, kind of dissecting or understanding what it is, how it's implemented in an actual investment strategy. I mean, how the current market um, has changed a lot over the past uh, six to 12 months and how sort of risk parity strategies uh, may be playing a much more important role um, for investors in their portfolios. Um, going forward. <clears throat> but to start, I thought we could maybe talk about the 60-40 stock bond portfolio and how the setup for that portfolio, while maybe it's improved a little bit with rates increasing and valuations coming down, um, how, how the setup really, though, isn't that great going forward. So maybe we could start there and then we can kind of get into um, all the stuff on risk parity. Sure. Yeah. Um, it requires a little bit of background on the, the overall framework for risk parity for us to kind of fit 60-40 into it. But if you think about um, portfolio balance or, or diversity, you want to 
um, have a balanced exposure to all the different type of economic environments that you might encounter. And you can think about economic environments as kind of falling along two different axes. One is, um, are inflation expectations rising or falling? And the other is, are growth expectations rising or falling? And so 60-40 is typically 60% stocks, 40% bonds. So it's just stocks and bonds. And we know for stocks that stock, they're fundamentally designed to do well during periods of um, uh, increasing growth expectations, relatively benign inflation, and abundant liquidity conditions. Um, obviously, we've had those three legs in place over the last 10 years. Bonds, on the other side, um, do well during benign inflation conditions, um, and typically when growth is not dramatically exceeding to the upside, because typically that's a company with inflation and bonds don't like inflation, right? So both stocks and bonds benefited from this kind of relatively um, slow growth environment, but where growth kind of fairly persistently just slightly exceeded expectations. We had benign inflation, which was good for, for both stocks and bonds. And we all know we've had abundant liquidity um, in spades with the, with the Fed and global central banks buying um, well over $100 billion worth of assets a month for years and years on end. Um, at the moment, we're coming into kind of the reverse environment. We've got the, first of all, world central banks removing liquidity. So one leg of the stool is sort of being kicked out from under us. Uh, inflation is no longer benign. We've had inflation CPI prints in the US above 8% year over year. And in other parts of the world, Europe, for example, they're, they're up into the low teens. And depending on how you measure it, sometimes in the mid-20s. Um, and there's some ambiguity about growth, right? Obviously, we had a, a substantial growth shock um, sort of starting around March, April 2020, when the governments around the world injected large amounts of uh, money directly into people's savings accounts, gave them a dramatic amount of spending power, and then they turned around and spent it, first of all, on, on goods that they ordered uh, from Amazon and are now sort of shifting, or over the last six or eight months, it sort of shifted into the service sector. So... Um, you know, it looks like growth is kind of the ambig ambiguity here, whether or not we've got gro slowing growth or whether growth is going to continue to come in a little stronger than expected. But two of the legs of the stool that do well for 60-40, this sort of abundant liquidity, that's reversed. And the benign inflation has also reversed, right? So that explains in large part why we've seen a typical 60-40 portfolio uh, fall on rougher times so far over the last six to 12 months. Yeah, like when you look at like the future return expectations from places like Vanguard and, you know, other shops, it's like lower than average historical stock returns given where valuations are and then bond, you know, returns are low too. So the standard 60-40, you know, looks like it's set up to produce a lot lower returns going forward than it has in the past, you know, 20 or 30 years, I think. Yeah, one of the things to look at is real rates, right? I mean, inv what investors actually should care about now whether they're emotionally anchored to this in the intermediate term it is remains to be seen but what they should care about over the long term is um, the returns that they get in excess of preserving their purchasing power so in excess of inflation so you know it's one thing for uh, nominal returns to be reasonable sort of in the five to six percent range maybe I've heard I just recently chatted with Auntie Ilmanen from AQR, I think he made a good case for why we should kind of expect stock returns to be in the kind of 
5 6% range nominal and bond returns call it 2 to 3%. So, you know, maybe you're in sort of 4 to 5% nominal for uh, your typical 60/40, but if inflation's running at 5 or 6%, then your real return, you're actually losing money um, or your wealth is decaying relative to the increases in the cost of living. So, um, you know, I, th- I think investors may be expecting reasonable um, forward returns for a typical 60-40 portfolio in nominal returns, but they may not be considering how the different inflationary dynamics that we're, we're seeing for this decade um, may overwhelm whatever sort of um, moderate growth that they might expect on their 60-40 portfolio. So they need to think differently about that than they have. So that's sort of a nice, I guess, backdrop for sort of getting into risk parity. So what I, you know, where we want to start with you is just at a high, broad level. And remember, a lot of our listeners are our retail investors, so it's not like we have an institutional, you know, mostly viewers. So if you were to describe it to your average investor, you know, a, a risk parity strategy, like how would you articulate that? Well, it actually starts with something really basic that I think everybody's familiar with, this idea of not holding all your eggs in one basket or, you know, some of the, all the ancient texts um, give a nod to this idea of, you know, you should own some of your wealth in land, some of it in currency, some of it in, in loans or that sort of thing. And, um, you know, in the, in the mid-80s, Harry Brown published a book on what he called the permanent portfolio, which is kind of hold a quarter of your wealth in in stocks, quarter in bonds, a quarter in gold, and a quarter in cash. The idea that these different investments are fundamentally designed to do well in very different economic environments. And then Ray Dalio in the in the early 90s uh, sort of expanded on this concept, and he called it an all-weather portfolio, which later became kind of this risk parity portfolio. Um, and it combined these concepts of diversity with which is what sort of Harry Brown was trying to get at, right? You want to hold assets that are fundamentally designed to do well in different economic environments with the concept of balance. And so let's let's get into to what that means. So diversity, just thinking along the two major drivers of uh, asset returns, right? Uh, changes in inflation expectations and changes in growth expectations. So diversity means holding in your portfolio a basket of instruments that are fundamentally designed to do well in all of those different economic regimes. We've already talked about how stocks do well during periods of um, uh, stronger than expected growth, benign inflation and abundant liquidity conditions. Bonds do well in um, benign growth or even maybe lower than expected growth, um, benign or slowing inflation conditions and abundant liquidity conditions. Um, But what we haven't talked about are assets that are fundamentally designed to do well during periods of of um, much larger than expected inflation dynamics, right? So stocks, neither stocks nor bonds are really designed to do well uh, in an inflationary environment. And there are a couple of different types of inflationary environments that we should probably talk about. Um, The first type of environment is the one that everybody kind of refers to in the 1970s, where you have these major supply shocks. Um, In the 1970s, they derive from oil shocks, um, the oil embargo and the deposement of the Shah of Iran, the Iranian war. And um, so that sort of propagated into prices everywhere and lineups at the gas pump, et cetera. And there are a variety of other dynamics that drove inflation rates much higher than expected in the 1970s. And um, in the 1970s, central banks around the world 
took steps to battle inflation. So they, they, they wanted to keep real rates positive. So they tried to keep the, um, the Fed funds rate and interest rates above the rate of inflation. Um, and what that meant is that they had to keep raising interest rates, which punished bonds. And it also, because it raised the discount rate on stocks, it punished stocks. So stocks and bonds both went down together or did poorly together in real, in real terms in the 1970s. But in the 1940s, late 1940s, early 1950s, as we were coming out of the war, the governments of the world took a very different tact. They said, well, we're going to allow the, the debts from the war to inflate away. And the way they did that was they held interest rates below the rate of inflation. They engaged in what's called financial repression. And that ended up um, allowing stocks to do relatively well because you had uh, low, real low real interest rates. Um, so they never really encountered this high discount rate, which punished uh, equity valuations, right? So there are inflationary environments where equities can do well. Um, and then there are other inflationary environments where equities do poorly. Um, bonds don't do well, typically, in, in any kind of inflationary environment. But what does do well in an inflationary environment is typically commodities. And commodities are vastly underrepresented in most people's portfolios. If you go to the 1970s, for example, a broad basket of commodities um, grew at low teens percent annualized in real terms, and gold grew at high teens per year in real terms in the 1970s. So even a, a, a modest holding in commodities and, and gold type assets would have allowed a truly diversified portfolio to do well um, in that inflationary setting. Um, and we had a similar dynamic play out in the, 19, in the 1940s and 50s. Um, so the other thing that, that governments of the world sort of introduced in the uh, 90s, the late 90s, were these inflation-protected securities. So institutions often protect against inflation by um, investing in securities where the, the, the rate of payment on the coupon of the government bonds uh, increase or are adjusted higher if inflation increases. Um, so they preserve their coupon values in real terms, and that's another way that, that investors can hedge against inflation. But the, so, so just, again, to sort of close a loop on this, um, diversity is the idea of, all, of, of holding all of these different types of markets in the portfolio that are fundamentally designed to do well in very different economic environments. That means owning bonds for the type of uh, economic environments that bonds are designed to do well in, stocks for the same reason, but also owning commodities and uh, treasury inflation securities or break-evens or, you know, there's other more exotic instruments that um, you can use as well. So that's that's diversity. And then the other side of the coin, which Harry Brown didn't really touch on very much, is this idea of balance. And that's where I think Ray Dalio and the forebearers of this risk parity concept really began to um, differentiate. You did a really good job explaining what risk parity is, but I want to also ask you about what it's not, because you'll still see these days on Twitter, in the media, you'll still see people talking all the time about, well, what risk parity really is, is just stocks, and then we lever up some bonds, we combine them together, and they'll talk about, oh, that must be doing horribly this year, because stocks and bonds are down together. Like, where does that come from? Like, how did people get to the point where they believe that that is risk parity? Yeah, Jack, it's, it's clearly you're an experienced interviewer, because it's actually a perfect segue. So... The way that risk parity, so we talked about diversity, right? The other, the other side of the risk parity equation is this idea of balance. And the way that 
most people explain this concept of balance is they, they use what people are used to, which is a stock bond portfolio, right? So let's just use a portfolio that's 50%, say, S&P 500 and uh, 40% in the Barclays Aggregate Index, right? So a uh, typical diversified uh, U.S. bond index. Well, you'd think you got 50% of your capital in stocks, 50% in bonds. You must be perfectly balanced. In reality, because stocks are so much more volatile than bonds, so bonds, so stocks, for example, typically on average go up on about 1% to 1.5% per day. Bonds, on average, kind of go up between 0.3% and 0.5% a day. So on any given day, the, the movement in the portfolio that's 50% stocks and 50% bonds is mostly going to come from the movement in stocks. And in fact, if you examine the proportion of the movements of the portfolio of that's 50-50 in stocks and bonds, over time, what you see is that about 90 to 95% of the day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month volatility in that portfolio comes from the stock side. And only about 5% comes from the bond side because there's such an imbalance in the amount of volatility that each of those markets are contributing to the portfolio. So you see what I did there, right? I used a stock bond portfolio to describe this idea of imbalance. And then the next step is to say, well, how do you create balance in a stock bond portfolio? Well, if you want stocks and bonds to have about the, to express about the same amount of risk in the portfolio, then you need to hold about 80% in bonds and 20% in stocks. So uh, that's great, but what's the problem with that? It, typically, that portfolio, because it has such a high bond concentration, or in capital at least, has a low expected return, right? We're holding mostly bonds. Bonds have low returns, so that portfolio has low return. So in, for a risk parity investor, the way you overcome the fact that typically a well-diversified portfolio, if you don't lever it, has a low expected return, is you lever the, to- the entire portfolio up, Right? So you say, let's say that portfolio that's 80% bonds and 20% stocks has an expected return of 2.5%. And you want a portfolio that delivers 5%. Well, then you would just take the 80% bonds, 20% stocks, lever it up. So now you've got 160% in bonds and 40% in stocks. You're still preserving that 80-20 ratio. You've still got an equal amount of risk in stocks and bonds, but it looks like all you've done is kind of levered the bond component, right? So that's where people think, oh, a risk parity portfolio is just a levered bond portfolio. It's not. It's a balanced portfolio where you've levered um, all of the assets in the portfolio to hit a target return. And in order to do that, typically the bond exposure goes above 100% because you need more bonds in the portfolio than stocks. Now, this is where, if I were to stop here, people would be like, oh, so a risk parity portfolio is a stock bond portfolio that holds a lot of bonds that's kind of levered, so you hold more than 100% in bonds, like 160% of bonds. And that's why it's so important to close a loop here, because risk parity or all-weather investing is about both diversity, holding all of these markets, all the global stock markets, all the global bond markets, all the global commodity markets and other inflation protection instruments, all of those in the portfolio, and making sure that the the markets in that portfolio that have lower risk have more capital in that portfolio, and the markets that have higher risk have less capital in the portfolio, so that all of those different diverse asset classes are held in perfect balance. 
And that way all of them are able to express their unique personality and they all have an opportunity to deliver their maximum benefit in whatever economic environment we might see in the future. Is some of that misconception based in reality? So are there, and I should probably know this, but are there funds out there that call themselves risk parity that just have stocks and bonds? No, not to my knowledge. I actually did a little bit of a a quick audit um, a couple of months ago because there was a lot of uh, misapprehension about this on Twitter and on other social media channels. And, you know, uh, Corey Hofstein and I decided we would look into whether or not we could find any, and we just we couldn't find any actual products out there that deliver risk parity with just stocks and bonds, because it's just so antithetical to the broader concept, which, which must include both diversity across asset classes and balance, not just balance in whatever capacity um, or what, whatever markets you want to choose. Yeah, it's, it's weird that the misconception, you know, it's, it's weird that it continues, despite the fact that there really is no evidence to suggest whatsoever that anybody's building risk parity that way. Um, I want to ask you about, you know, we've talked about the major asset classes that are in a risk parity portfolio. I want to ask you about how we think about the assets underneath there. So you've sort of talked about, you know, you want to hold all the commodities, but I think in practice, I mean, it's probably hard to hold, there's a lot of commodities, so it might be in practice hard to hold all of them. Or, you know, on the bond side, you know, you have a decision between, obviously government bonds might be good for the type of environment you have bonds in there for, but also there's corporate bonds and a lot of other stuff out there. So how do you think about like within the asset classes, what you want to hold? That's a good question. I mean, I don't think there's there's any sort of perfect answer, but it's it's helpful maybe to to frame the objective of the portfolio using language that I hope many um, listeners will connect to, right? So the purpose of constructing a portfolio is typically to generate the maximum amount of return uh, per unit of risk. Or stated in another way, if an investor has a certain minimum required return that they want to hit, well, they want to hit that required return with the minimum amount of risk that they need in order to hit it, right? And typically, an asset's expected return is proportional to um, to its risk, right? Now, risk can kind of be measured in a bunch of different ways. Oftentimes, the literature for all-weather risk parity defines risk in terms of um, uh, an asset class's volatility, right? So the the idea behind risk parity is that if you hold all of these diverse asset classes in perfect balance, you're taking the view that these diverse, each of these diverse asset classes, because they've diversified away all of the diversifiable risk and all we're left with is the non-diversifiable, non-diversifiable risk, that you're going to get about the same expected return on that on, on the diversifiable risk for each of those markets. So, um, you know, all of those markets have similar sort of risk-adjusted returns where risk is defined by non-diversifiable risk because risk parity is all about diversifying away all of the risk that you can diversify away, right? So you're only going to get rewarded for non-diversifiable risks, right? So then the question is, at what level of aggregation under the hood are you getting rid of all of the non-diversifiable risks? Now, if or all of the diversifiable risks rather. Now, if you could, optimally, you would take all of the world's listed securities, all in all of the individual securities, so all of the individual stocks, all of the individual bonds, and you would 
perform one big global optimization and you would then hold all of them um, so that they're all creating a portfolio that has diversified away all the diversifiable risk and all you're left with is the non-diversifiable risk. In practice, you typically take some level of aggregation. So for example, a lot of risk parity programs are run using futures markets. And futures typically track global equity indices, right? So there's a, there's a future that tracks the S&P 500, one that tracks the Dow, one that tracks the NASDAQ, one that tracks the, the FTSE in the UK, or the MIB in Italy, the Nikkei in Japan, et cetera. Right? So you take all these different global stock market indices, then there's um, futures that track all the major global bond indices and, and, and even short-term bonds and rates like euro dollars, sulfur and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got, you know, depending on how far down the liquidity ladder you want to go, you've got a couple dozen, maybe three dozen different commodity markets that you can allocate to in the futures markets. So, you know, we sort of think about, or it's common for a global risk parity mandate, many of the global futures funds will do this. They'll either bucket all of the equity index futures into the equity bucket, bucket all the bonds into a bond bucket, bucket all the commodities into a commodity bucket, maybe weight the commodities on risk or maybe equal weight them, and then hold an equal amount of risk in the equity bucket, the bond bucket, and the, um, and the commodity bucket. Um, we don't quite do it like that. We, we try to actually create maximum diversification across all the different equity indices, all the different bond indices, and all the different commodities um, as part of one optimization because there is um, diversifiable risk that you can eke out of the portfolio by, by doing it at that level. But, you know, by doing it that way, you, you are kind of squeezing 90 to 95%, I think, of the total diversifiable risk available um, out. And so you really are just left, left with this kind of non-diversifiable risk. And you've got a portfolio that is fundamentally designed to, ge to generate the highest return per unit of risk, assuming that markets are, in fact, relatively efficient. Um, in other words, that, that, that investors do try to maximally diversify and that investors are only really rewarded in markets for the non-diversifiable risk or the, the risk that they cannot possibly diversify away. Yeah, it seems like sort of a balance between diversifying and complexity. You want to achieve as much diversity as you can without bringing too much complexity into the process. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, there's complexity, there's transaction costs, there's liquidity challenges, there's, there's a number of different operational complications that, that you need to, to deal with. But yeah, I think that's a great way to state it. You want to maximize diversification to the point where operationally at the margin, it's no longer useful. You alluded to this idea before about volatility targeting, and, and you know this is something probably a lot of investors who listen to the podcast may not be familiar with. And you know when you see these risk parity pr strategies presented, you'll see them at you know a level of twelve percent volatility or eight percent volatility or something like that. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about you know how, how that those volatility levels are sort of determined and, and how that process goes of targeting a specific level of volatility. Sure. So let's take a simple risk parity portfolio that might hold um, the MSCI LCAP World Index. Um, so now you've got a cap-weighted equity portfolio. Um, the Barclays Global Aggregate, so a global portfolio of bonds in proportion to the size of issuance, and you know a common commodity index, call it the uh, the Goldman Sachs Index or the uh, Bloomberg Index. And um, I mean, you can you can effectively do this with with ETFs. Um, 
So that portfolio, if you were to hold them in risk parity, let's say it might hold, um, uh, let's say 20% in the equity index and 20% in the commodity index and 60% in the global bond index, right? And that portfolio might have an expected return of, let's say, 3%, right? Well, most investors don't want to own a portfolio that only generates 3% nominal, right? They have higher required return objectives than that. So what will typically happen is you'll take that portfolio and, you know, let's say the, the portfolio also has, just for the sake of easy math, an expected volatility of 3%, right? So you're going you're gonna to lever that portfolio, say, two to one. So you're going to borrow at the risk-free rate and you're going to lever that portfolio up two to one. So now the portfolio has an expected volatility of 6% and an expected return of 6%. Um, we're, we're, I'm using return here loosely because we're actually talking about excess return, right? Because when you borrow, you, there's, a, there's a cost for that. But so now you've got a 6% expected return, you've got a 6% volatility, and you've levered the portfolio by two times, right? So by targeting volatility in a risk parity framework, you're just targeting a higher expected rate of return, right? In order to hit the required return that is close to most investors' preferences, right? But typically, um, companies that run risk parity mandates, they'll offer a risk parity at a, at a 6% volatility and an 8% volatility at a 10% fall, at a 12%, at a 15%, right? And it'll just depend on the required return of the underlying investor. It may depend on other factors like leverage constraints or you know, other sort of qualitative constraints that the investor might um, have, have placed on the... Uh, the portfolio mandate. But I mean, there's also a question of how you target volatility. Um, so are you going to measure the current volatility of those markets and then expand and contract your total leverage in the portfolio over time in response to changes in the volatility and correlation conditions of the underlying markets that you're investing in? That's more of a sort of dynamic risk parity approach. And a lot of the... Um, popular products do that, but they don't do it, let's call it hyper-dynamically. They might use a sort of uh, two or three-year historical volatility and correlation estimate. So it does expand and contract through time, but it expands and contracts relatively slowly. Um, some of them re respond much more quickly. They're using a more near-term estimate of volatility and correlations. And you actually could see the both the weights in the portfolio and the total portfolio leverage expanding and contracting quite rapidly. Typically, only smaller funds would run it that way because um, you just don't have the, the liquidity absorption for much larger funds to run at that level of fall um, management. And then you've got sort of Bridgewater's all-weather that doesn't even use historical volatility and historical correlations explicitly but rather they um, have a fundamental econometric model that they use to have a strategic long-term weighting to um, all of these different underlying markets. And when volatility expands and the value of some of these markets contracts, they'll actually be, be buying more. So for example, typically um, when stock markets decline, volatility increases. So a more dynamic risk parity strategy they're observing the volatility of equities increasing. They're selling equities as, as equities go down. Whereas Bridgewater is saying, 
we want, we want to hold a static weight in equities. I don't know, call it 20, 25% in equities. If equities drop, all of a sudden their weight in the portfolio may be 20%. So they need to buy more equities as equities are dropping in order to get back to their strategic weighting. So there's different ways that different all-weather or, or, or risk parity investors approach this volatility or risk targeting um, mandate. I assume nobody, you know, takes it to this level in the real world. But just for me, like as an investor who like is not that risk averse, I was I was just wondering, like, given that we have a lot of different assets that do well in different environments, it seems like you could take this to a pretty high level of volatility and, and it would work over the long term. But it also seems like there might be a certain level where, you know, you might break it, but it would probably be pretty high. And I'm just wondering, like, has there been done, research done around that? Like how high you can take the vol on something like this? Well, I mean, if you, you, you can use the sort of historical empirical data and you might say, okay, the very long term um, sharp ratio on a globally diversified risk parity portfolio might be in the neighborhood of 0.5 or 0.6, right? And then you can take the ambient volatility of that portfolio if you don't lever it. And then you can just Kelly size it. And, you know, I, I haven't done it, but I'm going to guess that maybe the optimal leverage would be in the neighborhood of three three and a half, four times, um, depending on if you, you're including rates in, in the portfolio. And, um, but the other side of this is that it's not like you're diversifying away all risk. You're only, di- you're, you're only diversifying away diversifiable risk, right? There's still two important sources of risk that you can't effectively diversify away in a costless way. So for example, one of those is and uh, an unexpected shock to expected future cash rates. So when the Fed makes statements about where it wants the Fed funds rate or about yield curve control or um, inflation expectations begin to move in such a way that investors anticipate that the Fed is going to um, take action to increase expected future cash rates, then that affects the discount rate for all markets everywhere in the same direction at the same time. And because what's happening, right? Why do investors take risk in markets? It's because they're hoping to be able to generate a return that, in excess of what they can get by placing their money in risk-free T-bills, right? They take duration risk in bonds because they're hoping that they're going to generate a higher return on a 10-year bond than they would than they would get by holding their money in T-bills. They're investing in equities because they're hoping that they're, the equities are going to generate a longer, uh, a higher long-term return than they would expect to get in T-bills. All things equal, if equities and, and longer-term bonds were not going to provide a higher return than they would get on holding their money in cash, every investor would hold it in cash because it's immediately available for consumption and there's no risk on its future value, right? So, you know, they're only enticed to move money out of cash and into risky assets if they believe they're going to earn more on those risky assets than they're going to earn in cash. Well, if the Fed comes out or central banks come out and say, we're going to increase the rate that investors are going to earn on cash, well, it means that all risky assets are going to need to reprice lower to, to, so that they are then expected to generate a high enough required return that investors will be enticed out of cash and into those risky assets, right? So that's a risk that you cannot diversify away with a costless hedge, right? You can buy euro dollar puts, you can buy, you know, there's a, there's a variety of ways you can do it, but they're not costless. The other type of risk that you can't diversify away is 
risk premium risk or sentiment risk, right? It could be that investors one day require a 3% um, excess return on stocks in excessive cash, but because of a heightened sense of uncertainty, the next day they might require a 4% required return above cash to be enticed into equities, right? Um, that can happen due to geopolitical risk or economic uncertainty or inflation uncertainty. Whatever it is, investors now require a higher excess return above cash. So even if the Fed is not changing expectations of future cash rates, if investors are now requiring a higher premium, then that is going to cause, uh, cause all security values to fall in tandem, right? And so there's no way to diversify those away. In the end, over the long term, those are actually the risks that investors are paid to, uh, are paid to take. And that's the, those are the risks that are rewarded with a global diversified risk parity portfolio. We've been doing some more work with people who are just starting in retirement. And, you know, as part of that, we've been running more like Monte Carlo type simulations. And, you know, one of the things, you know, intuitively going into that, but you sort of learn more as you do it is how important, you know, limiting drawdowns and managing sequence risk is for people when they're just starting out in retirement. And it would seem to me like looking at this type of portfolio and its ability to do that, it would seem like this type of portfolio might support a much better withdrawal rate than something like a 60-40 portfolio. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you've seen any research done around that in terms of like the types of withdrawal rates this will support relative to something like a more standard 60-40 portfolio. Yeah. So a lot of this comes down to your assumptions, right? If you're going to go back and look at the empirical data, and many people use the long-term historical returns on U.S. stocks and bonds because kind of like the lamppost problem. You're familiar with that one where, you know, you got the drunk who's looking for his keys and a guy, and he's standing by the lamppost and he's looking around in the light looking for his keys. And a guy comes along and says, what are you looking for? Well, I lost my keys. And the guy says, well, did you lose it by the lamppost? No, but that's where the light is, right? So it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing with U.S. equities, right? Like U.S. equities have by far the longest historical return data that's readily available to investors. And so investors who like to use long-term returns, and that's prudent because we go through a wide variety of different economic regimes, as we talked about, well, it's good to have access to, to, to a data set that goes back as far as possible. The problem with that, of course, is that you're only looking at one, the history of one market or one economy, right? And in many ways, the U.S. is an outlier. The U.S. equity risk premium is about a little over 2% per year higher than the global equity risk premium. So it's closer to 6%. The global is closer to 4%, right? And the bond risk premium is is higher as well by about 0.4%. So you're sort of getting a overly optimistic long-term sense of what to expect from markets. I mean, some very large markets through history, um, equity markets and bond markets have actually gone to zero, right? The Chinese market went to zero. The Russian market went to zero. The Austrian market went to zero. Um, the Argentinian market went to, went to zero. Chinese market went to zero, zero under Mao. And so, you know, you're not, obviously, the, the U.S. economy is at a stable political environment. They were insulated from, largely from both world wars, at least the destruction on, their, on, the, uh, on, on our continent, right? So there's a lot of things that went really, really well for the United States that, that maybe we shouldn't count on going forward. So you're better off if you can use a... Um, you know, a diversified global set of indices. But then you're sort of limited or more limited in how far back you can go, right? So, 
you know, if you're if you're going to just try and use the historical data to make some of these assumptions, then that gets tricky. You're, are you are you also going to use the historical return distribution? You know, we know that that returns in many markets have fat tails. We haven't seen a lot of those fat tails in aggregate. Um, if you look at sort of globally over the long term. So anyways, I could go on and on about why this is tricky, but really in the end, it kind of, the, what you take out of an analysis like that is gonna be a function of the assumptions that you make, right? And our, in general, our assumption is that the global risk parity portfolio is what you would invest in if you had no idea what the future would hold, right? It's sort of maximally resilient to whatever time, type of sustained economic environment that, that we might face in the future, right? So, you know, historically, about 80% of the time, we've had um, benign inflation and relatively robust economic growth and uh, global central banks that were ready to step in and um, provide ample liquidity. That has been very favorable to a 60-40 portfolio. There's no guarantee we're going to have that kind of ratio of 80 to 80% benign environment that's positive for 60-40 and 20% of the time that it, you know it's not. We may not have that mix going forward. If going forward, you still think we're going to have 80% of the time, it's going to be fairly rosy for 60-40 and we're only going to have problems about 20% of the time, maybe skewing more to 60-40 in your retirement portfolio or in a long-term wealth preservation portfolio makes a bit more sense. If, on the other hand, you are more agnostic about what the future might hold and think that the 20th century was actually an outlier relative to what we might see in the future, and certainly the 20th century had the largest amount of peacetime and the, and the least amount of inflation that of any history or any century prior, so it's a very optimistic assumption. So if you think that, we, that the next century might be more tumultuous, we might have more frequent or longer or more violent inflationary episodes um, that the U.S. may lag other uh, parts of the world than taking a more resilient, humble approach on your assumptions by investing more in a global risk parity portfolio probably um, will provide for a higher expected safe withdrawal rate, for example, than a 60-40 uh, a portfolio. The problem is, depending on how far back you go and how you construct the 60-40 portfolio versus the global risk parity portfolio, you will get different, draw different conclusions empirically from the, from the historical sample. And, you know, intuitively, this, this portfolio seems to make sense from that perspective, though, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to take these, you know, the bad outcome when you're in retirement is you have no money left. So that's, that's a really bad outcome and you really have to avoid that. So this idea of being robust to all the different four quadrants, you know, to me makes a lot of sense when, you, when you're trying to limit that problem. You know, we don't know, like you said, we don't know if the 64 is going to work better or if we're in a new regime here. But, you know, you're, you're just taking everything and you're looking at all the possible outcomes and, and you, you have something in there to deal with it. So it, it does make sense intuitively in retirement from my perspective, at least. Yeah, I mean, like um, Brian Portnoy said, right, the, the, uh, the problem with diversification is it's, you always have to say you're sorry, right? Because there's always going to be one or sometimes two of the major asset classes in your portfolio, in your diversified global risk parity portfolio, that are really sucking, right? If you look at the last decade, obviously, you know, owning up until, you know, the last year or so, owning commodities strategically has been a drag. Owning global 
equity markets outside the U.S. has been a drag. Owning global bond markets has been a drag, right? So any sort of diversification you've needed to apologize for over the last decade. So, you know, it's hard. And ex post, if somebody doesn't under, if, if somebody is, um, falls prey to Andy Duke, what Andy Duke calls resulting, which is kind of just looking what actually happened and judging an advisor on how they did relative to what actually happened. That I think it was Josh Brown who said at hindsight capital, it's always a good year, right? Um, so if you're, if you're always looking back and judging an advisor or a fund manager, et cetera, on what actually happened, then risk parity is always going to look kind of goofy because you're always going to hold asset classes that really didn't do well because it, the historical, you know, last three to five years, just they favored in particular a certain type, a certain group of asset classes. And last year, last 10 years, it really favored U.S. stocks and bonds, right? So risk parity, if you're looking backwards, looks kind of foolish, right? Boy, the point is, though, you need to not make judgments about what is in the rearview mirror. You may need to be able to do what Gretzky did and skate to where the puck is going, but that's really hard to know in advance, right? So the global risk parity portfolio says, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what ratio we're going to get, inflation or growth. I don't know what the magnitude of those shocks are going to be, and I just want to be prepared for whatever comes. As a factor guy, my tendency with everything is to say, oh, I, I can enhance this with factors. I can make it better. And, you know, thinking about risk parity, I, I was interested to, to talk about like the idea of using factors here. So for instance, if I, you know, overweight the asset classes with the most momentum or try to exclude things with, with negative momentum, you know, on one hand you could say, all right, this makes it better. But on the other hand, you could say, well, it defeats the purpose because the purpose is I want assets that do well in all four of these quadrants. And if I'm starting to take assets out in one of the quadrants, I've left myself exposed. So I'm wondering, how do you think about like the idea of maybe using factors? or something like this? From more of a theoretical perspective, I mean, the idea here, the idea for any portfolio is to continue to add as many uncorrelated sources of risk and return as possible, right? So when you think about actual factors, right, as we all know, well, a the, the value factor is a is an effectively a um, market neutral portfolio that owns on the long side uh, stocks with positive value characteristics and goes short a portfolio of stocks that have negative value characteristics. And the same for, you know, quality or low volatility or, you know, however, momentum, however you want to define that, right? So, you know, in theory, you could add of the value factor is just another uncorrelated source of returns, just like the equity risk premium or the duration premium or the commodity rebalancing premium, right? For a, gl a global risk parity portfolio, you've got all these different risk premia that you're holding in the portfolio. You're, you're balancing across them. So ideally, what you're able to do is add in the value factor premium, the momentum factor premium, the trend factor premium, etc. And you want to you want to give an equal amount of risk to the trend factor, to the momentum factor, to the the value factor, etc. Right. So in a in a theoretical framework, that's kind of what you'd want to achieve. I mean, that's what we do in our in our mutual fund product. Right. We we 
have, we stack on all these different sources of return. We've got sort of the, the global risk parity portfolio, and then we add a bunch of stuff. Global carry, global trend, seasonality, value, all these other different sleeves, right, in relative risk proportion. Um, now, if you're kind of a um, retail investor who kind of wants to do this themselves, then I think, you, in theory, you should get an improvement by, for example, instead of holding a global cap-weighted index in your portfolio, maybe hold a global multi-factor index in your portfolio. Instead of owning uh, the Barclays Ag, maybe own um, an active uh, bond fund, right? There's actually decent evidence that um, active management is relatively effective in bond funds. And if you didn't want to do that, then maybe you would, you know, a great factor that is underappreciated and underutilized in bonds is the fallen angels factor, right? This idea that many insurance companies and pensions are not able to hold a bond that falls below a double B rating. And so when the, a bond uh, is re-rated below double B, institutions instantly are required to sell that bond and they sell it at often at a lower price than it should be worth. And so investors that are able to, to buy those types of bonds earn a premium on that structural, um, that structural factor. Um, in commodities, there's a variety of other premiums in commodities like um, the carry factor or the trend factor or seasonality, that sort of thing, right? So those are a little bit harder for individual investors to 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 do on themselves, though obviously, you know, our our funds um, take advantage of those types of uh, those types of premia. So the answer is absolutely yes. The more sophisticated an institution or an individual mutual fund that's able to actually put all these pieces together for you gets the higher expected efficiency of that portfolio in theory. But investors who sort of insist on wanting to do it themselves can either hold a basket of multiple factor ETFs or a multi-factor ETF for each of the different constituencies. And in theory, expect to get a slightly higher um, return per unit of risk. I want to ask you about how this relates to behavior because, you know, we run some multi-asset portfolios that go beyond stocks and bonds. And, you know, if, if you look at the points of failure for investors, there's really two. There's one, when they lose money, they might panic and abandon their strategy. And the other is when they look different than their neighbor, they might panic. And so this one's really good, risk parity on number one, and struggles a little bit on number two, because as you alluded to with the Brian Portnoy quote, I mean, we've been apologizing for the diversification for a long time up until this recent period where it's worked really well. And so I'm wondering, do you, do you find that maybe that that's a big challenge that maybe that second point of failure can sometimes be harder than the first point of failure. Like investors have a harder time being different than their neighbor than they do losing money. Absolutely. I actually, I think that this is the dominant risk in markets that 95% of the time um, investors are much more um, afraid of tracking your risk than they are of the loss of, of real wealth. Um, and, you know, I think, for example, that that's a reason why the low volatility premium exists is because investors are much more concerned with relative status or relative wealth than they are with absolute wealth, right? It's not nearly so painful for you to lose money if all of your friends and neighbors are losing money at the same time, right? It's extraordinarily painful to lose money if all of your friends and neighbors are making money. And 
you know, obviously the holy grail is to make money while all your friends and neighbors are losing money, right? But, um, you know, the, it, to do that, you need to risk the opposite, which is to go through periods where you're losing money or not making as much money as your, as your friends and neighbors. Um, so, you know, I think the entire asset management industry is built around the reality that investors are mostly concerned with relative wealth status and don't really care until sort of extremes, like the extremes of 2008 bear market, the extremes of the 2000 to 2003 bear market, that's when they begin to, to become concerned about absolute wealth. But the vast majority of the time, they're, they're just concerned about relative wealth. Do you think that what are the greatest, the best strategies to mitigate this? So on one side, I think education would probably be helpful. You know, you guys have come up with this interesting concept of return stacking, which makes people's portfolios maybe not look as different as they otherwise would have. I mean, what do you think the best ways to deal with this problem are? Yeah, return stacking is kind of the um, the best way that we've come up with to um, to accommodate this trade off. And you know, his, you know, it's funny because of course, until sort of this year. Um, Everyone wanted to own mostly U.S. 60-40 portfolio. But if you go back to 2007, you couldn't pay investors to own a U.S. 60-40 portfolio, right? I mean, everyone wanted to own REITs, emerging markets, commodities. That Remember the BRICS, right? No, you couldn't sell U.S. 60-40 in, in, uh, in June of 2007, right? And um, so this, the problem is that, that the benchmark that investors have tracking year or two changes over time, right? So the current return stacking, the original return stacking paper that, that we released assumed that the core emotional benchmark for most investors is the U.S. 60-40 portfolio. And so we showed how you can have a 100% exposure to U.S. 60-40 and build on these diversifying exposures um, on top using um, a relatively novel framework that is that's only really become a practically imp implementable in the last year or two because certain products were um, uh, introduced that allowed investors to be able to express this kind of framework. Um, you know, our, our fund takes the view that the, the core portfolio should be kind of this globally diversified risk parity uh, benchmark, but that's rarely people's emotional benchmark. Right. So we're kind of fighting a little bit of an uphill battle in terms of the, you know, we're going to have a large tracking year relative to the U.S. 6040 from time to time. This year, it's great because it's obviously dramatically positive tracking year. But in, in you know, a, a few calendar years in the late, uh, you know, 2015 to 2019 period, obviously a, a globally diversified portfolio would have lagged a, a U.S. 6040 portfolio by by 10 or 12 percent. Or more, right? So this is obviously very difficult. You need to understand investors. You to understand what their emotional benchmark is, right? So when they go to dinner parties, what are their friends investing in, and what are they going to have envy about if they're if that benchmark is really doing well and their diversified portfolio is doing poorly? Advisors need to be aware of this as well, and you know make use of the return stacking concept, but with a mix of assets that at least accounts in some way for each individual investor's different tracking error preferences. For anyone who's interested more in return stacking, we did an interview with uh, Adam's partner, Rodrigo Gordillo and Corey Hostein on, on one of our episodes. So if you search return stacking on our YouTube channel, you can get another hour of uh, talking just around that topic. 
Um, just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. You, you, you'll see on Twitter all the time this idea that risk parity could contribute to breaking the market. So, you know, the idea is, as you alluded to this before, as volatility rises in equities, risk parity strategies have to sell equities. And there, there's this idea that this cascading sell loop will develop and, you know, risk parity will lead to like a market meltdown. I mean, do you think there's really any risk to that? Or do you think that really is like a lack of understanding of how risk parity really works? Yeah, I think... I think the general idea that vol control products may exacerbate um, market sell-offs has merit. I don't think risk parity or, you know, it's kissing cousin kind of CTAs um, contribute dramatically to that. Um, I mean, by far the largest risk budgeted markets uh, or balance sheets in the world are uh, bank balance sheets. And banks need to manage their um, their overnight VAR to liquid markets. And they've got sometimes multi-trillion dollar global derivative books. So, you know, if the volatility on global rates escalates, then, you know, global banks need to rebalance like de-risk or de-gross their bank balance sheets in response to changes in VAR estimates. And we're talking orders of magnitude, two, three, four orders of magnitude larger um, in terms of the size of those balance sheets and the size of those adjustments that need to, to take place. So, you know, um, you've got a variety of different vol management going on in markets. Um, some of that is mandated by regulation. I mean, the, the bank balance sheet VAR management is mandated by regulation. They 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 need to manage their balance sheets like that, and and that will absolutely exacerbate market moves in both directions. Um, in comparison, the the couple hundred billion dollars in, in global risk parity or or CTAs, I think has a very small marginal impact. And also this, this smooths itself out over time. Like you're, you're, no one is running a risk parity strategy with a look back of yesterday or last week or anything, right? I mean, it takes time for the volatility to rise before there would be the selling. Is, is that a good way to look at it? Yeah, the vast majority of, of commercial risk parity strategies will not be nearly that responsive for sure. And thank you for reminding me because as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the Bridgewater all-weather portfolio, which I think is the largest global risk parity strategy works in the other way, right? When markets are selling off, that portfolio is buying markets as, as markets get more volatile and sell off, right? So while some number of risk parity mandates might be slightly lowering their uh, exposure to stocks, for example, as stocks become more volatile as they sell off, well, on the other side of that trade, Bridgewater is absorbing those flows because they need to you know, their strategic stock allocation has declined because the value of the stock side has declined. They need to buy stocks to raise their total exposure back up to their target, right? So you've got this offsetting effect where certain funds are buying what other funds are selling, and all of those funds are swamped by the effects that are going on for rebalancing of uh, global bank balance sheets. How do you guys think about, like, when a new asset class comes and becomes available. Like I'm thinking like, you know, cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin and how would you think about adding that or incorporating that into a risk parity portfolio? Like what would it take for you to get exposure to something like that? Uh, yeah, great question. I mean, as we examine the historical performance of, for example, our risk parity strategy, um, we just at each point in time examine which, which 
global futures markets that are launched meet our liquidity standards, right? And so as soon as a new market meets our liquidity thresholds, then we just add it historically over time because we just want to we want to own as many diversified um, exposures in the portfolio as possible. And so when crypto was launched, we took a very hard look at that. We want to own crypto futures in the portfolio. Unfortunately, regulation has gotten in the way with um, holding global futures markets. So it's actually extremely difficult, or at least you need to jump through a huge number of regulatory hurdles in order to add crypto to um, diversified global portfolios, even if you want to just hold CME futures. And um, so we've, we've opted not to add those, though we very much would love to add those because one of the, one of the major weak spots of these global risk parity portfolios historically has been periods like the last decade where, you know, the vast majority, you know, well over half, and, and I'm, I want to say upwards of two thirds of all global total returns have accrued to a very narrow segment of the market. In this case, you know, the fangs, right? Or like the global growth story, right? As we just had just an absurd amount of liquidity flow into the system and investors were rewarded for Ponzi-like dynamics. So, you know, what grew out of that? Well, also crypto, right? So, you know, it would be great to have an asset that is fundamentally driven by Ponzi-like dynamics that we could hold in a diversified uh, risk parity portfolio with appropriate risk weighting. I mean, keep in mind, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum futures are extremely volatile. So in a, in a risk parity framework, they would hold a very small capital weight, call it probably in aggregate less than 1%. But when you're talking about assets that deliver 4,000% returns in, in some years, um, that 1% can be very meaningful in, in the portfolio, right? So, I mean, in general, we want to be agnostic. We want to hold all liquid markets. And crypto especially serves a very unique purpose in that it gives us exposure to um, the types of market environments which we've experienced mostly recently with these insane central bank liquidity policies that have facilitated Ponzi economics where typically global risk parity portfolios um, sometimes lag the most watched indices. Yeah, to your point, I don't know what the standard deviation is on you know Bitcoin, but it's you know something crazy. So it'd be you know a very very small percent of the of the risk parity portfolio. And it probably should be if people are investing in it, a very very small percent of people's overall portfolios as well if they're allocating to to crypto. Um, I wanted to just get your thoughts here on some of the uh, things going on in the economy and the market because I know you have some interesting uh, takes and thoughts on some of this stuff. So. Um, the first question is around inflation, and I think there's sort of this question in the market as to whether or not you know this inflation is going to subside here, if we're going to work our way through some of these supply chain issues, and if the Fed's uh, increasing of rates is going to is going to cool things down, or if it's you know maybe here to stay for longer than we think, and if maybe the Fed can even you know address some of these problems. So, just generally, what is your what is your take on the inflationary environment? I think the um, there's there's a couple of different things that are happening. One is that, you know, in March of 2020, the um, global central banks and global governments decided that they were going to pivot their fiscal and monetary policy 
uh, at exactly the time that the world was entering a completely different um, supply-demand regime, right? So um, the governments around the world said, we need to shut down the global economies to moderate the spread of this global pandemic, um, which means that we need to give households and businesses income in order to be able to live while they're no longer engaged in labor um, and when a large segment of them are no longer engaged in production, right? And so the government fire-hosed money into people's bank accounts, and so you had an instant demand shock at the same time that there was a reduction in global supply chains, right? We were shutting down shipping lanes. China was shutting down manufacturing. Many of the um, global manufacturing hubs were, were almost completely shut down for a time. And so you had a sort of short-term supply demand imbalance. And it's taken a long time for that to work through the system, right? At the same time, you've had um, an environment where people are very concerned about climate change. There's been a huge move towards ESG, environmental social governments style investing. And it has made the cost of capital for uh, the types of companies that produce the basic materials that we need as a global economy to function um, dramatically raised the cost of capital for these companies and made their future cash flows a lot more uncertain. And as a result, you know, these major commodity companies especially um, just did not invest in the capex required to replenish their dwindling reserves. And so you've had effectively a lost decade in investment in capital-intensive businesses and what that means is, given the life cycle of bringing on new supply, for example, new sources of oil, natural gas, copper, um, and you know many of the other uh, potash, fertilizer, um, that kind of stuff that feed into the raw material supply chain, um, it's now almost impossible for us to meet global demand for all of our basic materials. And we also, you know, the runway to bring on new demand is measured in several years, not several months, right? So, you know, it's possible, for example, that the Fed right now has, has up until now at least taken a fairly hard line on whether they're going to tolerate inflation, right? Jerome Powell has invoked Volcker as his model for how to manage inflation, and the market so far has taken him at his word that they will prioritize inflation and they will allow asset prices to fall and growth to slow in order to tame inflation. We're just now starting to see some language come from um, out of the Fed in their beige book that, that suggests that maybe several FOMC voting members don't have the same level of conviction as Jerome Powell in their desire to fight inflation expectations at all costs. And so we're seeing now the market begin to price in. So, I mean, there's, there's two ways that this inflation shock can play out, right? One is the 1970s inflation shock where the Fed says, we're going to raise interest rates to fight inflation and we will sacrifice the economy and asset prices to do so, right? The other, the other um, inflation, type of inflation is the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, this um, financial repression 
where the Fed says we're going to keep in, uh, interest rates low, much lower than the rate of inflation, and allow our debt to inflate away in real terms. Okay, so what happens to asset prices over the next couple of years is going to depend on whether the Fed is going to engage in financial repression or whether they're going to raise rates above the level of inflation like they did in the 1970s. If they take the financial repression path, that actually could be reasonably bullish in nominal returns for equity prices and more benign for bond prices, though it's still not a very favorable environment for bonds. Uh, in real terms, bonds will deliver very negative returns. Stocks will deliver maybe slightly positive nominal returns, um, or sorry, maybe even high nominal returns, but only very slightly positive returns after inflation. Um, and commodities should absolutely tear higher here. Um, if the Fed decides that they're going to try and fight inflation like they did in the 1970s, then we'll have a period of continuing escalation in commodity prices while asset prices get uh, systematically crushed um, as that, um, you know, the risk-free rate or the discount rate rises. I mean, the other factor that, that investors are pricing here is this sentiment factor or the risk premium factor. During periods of high inflation, there's typically a lot of inflation volatility and a lot of uncertainty in policy response. That is negative for corporate earnings. And, and so not only are investors pricing a higher discount rate, in other words, they're pricing the fact that the Fed is going to raise rates into this inflationary shock, but they're also pricing higher earnings volatility, and that requires a higher risk premium, which is also requiring you know, asset prices to deflate, right? So if they allow inflation to run hot, then you're, you're still going to get a higher, require a higher risk premium because you're still going to get that um, more uncertainty in corporate earnings, but you'll get a lower discount rate. So asset prices could, in theory, rise in nominal returns, right? In, if they're going to fight inflation, eventually we may get a recession. It may be a deep enough recession to overcome the supply bottlenecks in commodities. And so you may actually see a major uh, commodity crash as well. But I would expect that if in order for the Fed to lower global demand enough to create an equilibrium of, su of supply and demand in commodities, it would have to be a, a deep recession and probably would engineer a financial crisis. So, you know, you're going to see asset prices really enter sort of a crash type environment in, in, that, in that scenario. In a financial repression scenario, we could chug along with reasonably high nominal equity returns, uh, quite high nominal commodity returns. In fact, commodities might get way out of control and they may eventually um, force the Fed's hand and they may eventually need to engineer a recession. Or we could get oil and, and um, other core commodity prices that are so high that they, you know, just consumers needing to, to take so much from their discretionary budget to pay for raw materials may also lower, lower uh, aggregate demand enough to engineer a recession. A lot of great deep thoughts in that, um, in that riff there, um, taking something from resolved riffs. But one of the things, too, that you kind of opened my eyes to is, and I, I guess I hadn't really thought about this. I mean, for like the last decade, you've heard about this underinvestment. And it kind of goes back to buybacks. It's like, 
you know, all these companies were using, you know, all the, the, the profits or issuing debt and not reinvesting it necessarily back in the business. They were really buying back stock and they weren't, you know, and so, but when you think about the, I guess the, um, the result of that for these manufacturing intense businesses that needed the investment, you know, when we had this demand shock due to the shutdown, you know, it kind of resulted in this, this domino effect. And it almost seems like, um, the Fed won't be able to be as effective with the raising of interest rates if it, if it is in fact, at least in part driven by this underinvestment in capital. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, the, the Fed can do an excellent job in reducing, um, in reducing aggregate investment, in reducing employment, and eventually engineering a recession, which will hit capital goods and the discretionary sector, and eventually the services sector, right? But none of those really solve one of the major underlying fundamental problems, which is just there's not enough supply of fundamental, um, of, of fundamental uh, base materials to meet demand. I mean, the other, the other major secular global dynamic that's in play here is that we're having an escalation in geopolitical conflict, right? We're moving from a cooperative world to a competitive world where you've got trade blocks forming now. You've got kind of China and Russia forming. You know, you've just had very strong statements by the Biden administration on how they would take any aggression by China against Taiwan, drawing very clear boundaries. You've got Russia and China um, talking about coming closer on a variety of different dimensions. And you've got the wake-up call of the global dynamic of the global pandemic and this war in Western Asia, or sorry, Western Europe, um, that are drawing to, to government's attention the fact that this idea of offshoring our entire manufacturing chain, um, that's great in an environment when you can rely on the fact that your trade partners are going to deliver on those strategic shipments. But it's not so good when, for example, uh, India is going to decide that they're going to halt all wheat shipments um, because they need to deal with their own internal problems. Or, you know, China is manufacturing critical po- components for the that, that go into um, major military investments in the U.S. Um, you know, is is China going to continue to provide those strategic uh, manufactured components to the U.S. if we if we get into a hostile geopolitical posture with them, you know. So there's we've gone from a, from a period where global governments and global companies were trying to maximize the efficiency of the supply chain to a period where we're trying to maximize the resiliency of the supply chain, and they, those two things are at odds. The efficiency of a supply chain drives down costs is disinflationary. The resiliency of a supply chain means that you need to reproduce manufacturing capabilities in a variety of different jurisdictions in order to ensure that if one of those jurisdictions goes offline, you've still got that strategic supply in another more friendly jurisdiction. So you need to build new factories. You need to, you know, um, build new infrastructure, et cetera, in a variety of new jurisdictions and building factories and infrastructures requires a huge amount of capex and a huge amount of raw materials. And so 
this is the type of cycle that we're moving into that's going to drive demand for these raw materials at exactly the time when supply of these raw materials is constrained by geopolitical problems. You know, obviously, a huge proportion of global energy and global food production is either directly sourced from Ukraine and Russia or has um, uh, supplies from Ukraine and Russia that feed into them, for example, potash and uh, phosphate uh, markets, right, that are required for food production elsewhere. So, so demand escalating by onshoring and, and moving from efficiency to resiliency, supply constraints in terms of raw materials and, and geopolitical conflict, they're going to conspire to make the inflation genie extremely difficult to put back in the bottle, which is why I say if the Fed wants to truly conquer an, a, a commodity market that's spiraling out of control, they will have to engineer a deep recession. And so, you know, they're going to try and walk the tightrope here. It looks like they're going to try and walk back their Volcker-esque um, real rates, positive real rates, 1970s-style inflation fight and turn it into more of a compromise between financial repression and Volcker-style inflation fighting, I think they're going to find that it's going to be impossible to fight to walk the tightrope. Um, but the market is going to take a long while to, to navigate this, and policymakers are going to be very data-driven. So I think really what we're going to see over the next two or three or five years even is just a lot of volatility as market re markets respond and then governments respond to market forces, and there's this, you know, um, back and forth as we as we fail to find any sustainable equilibrium. And, and and by the way, everything that you just outlined in the last ten minutes is exactly why, for many investors, especially that are you know in retirement or want a conservative investment strategy, why a risk parity strategy makes a lot of sense because everything you know you just outlined are all uncertainties, risks, potential things that could you know go right or wrong. But I think, you know, that this discussion, you know, the reason we're talking about this is because risk parity is a strategy that can handle all these different types of environments. Um, so that's this, this is an important thing to be thinking about for investors that are, you know, in the markets in long term. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, to Jack's point and, and Justin, I know you agree, um, you know, expanding this concept of risk parity to include other sources of return is going to become more and more important as, you know, if, if the government is going to continue to raise the expected future cash rate, then all, you know, at least two legs of the three-legged stool are going to be under pressure. You know, stocks are going to be in pressure and bonds are going to be on pressure, which means that you're relying exclusively on the commodity sleeve to bail you out, Right. Risk parity typically over time has two, at least two of the major core um, allocation sleeves working for you, right? In periods of low inflation and abundant growth, you've got stocks and stocks doing really well, bonds doing reasonably well, maybe commodities not doing what doing so well. You know, if, if you sort of look across all these different environments, really only one environment where, where central banks are, are actively trying to raise expectations of, of future cash rates 
Do you have two of these forces kind of working against you and one of them may be working for you, right? So it's more and more important to add stuff like exposure to the value premium, exposure to momentum, exposure to trend, exposure to macro trading and you know systematic macro trading. These types of sleeves that are agnostic to what the Fed is trying to do or what the global economy is trying to do. They're deriving the returns from completely uncorrelated sources of risk. So this idea of diversification expanding into other types of diversification is more and more important when the traditional sources of diversification can't be relied upon with confidence. We have a standard closing question. We weren't able to ask you this on the first time you joined us because we didn't have it at the time. So, but we do have one now. And um, that is um, based on your experience in the markets. If you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Yeah, I mean, it would be diversify, right? It would be, it would be, it would be, be humble about what you know and what you can know. And um, don't be over-reliant on what you observed in the past. The past is one one sample draw from an infinite variety of potential sample draws that we might we might get in the future in terms of combinations of um, inflation, growth, geopolitical risk, supply demand dynamics, technological shocks, et cetera. And the future is probably going to look quite a bit different from the past. And so the the best way to prepare for the unknown is to, to diversify. So I think that would be my my core message. All right. We'll put links to uh, the Resolve website so anybody listening to this um, can go and check out their investment strategies and how to contact them. Um, Adam, I know you're on Twitter. Um, any place else you want people to go? Yeah, I'm on, on Twitter at GestaltU. That's G-E-S-T-A-L-T-U. And our website is investresolve.com. So check it out. Great. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. It's a lot of fun. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.